thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. I remember growing up in California and recycling becoming a big deal. There was this big push to recycle every home, got that green container where you put all your recyclables in, and there were commercials showing what your products could be converted into. And and I'll have to say, when it first started, I just threw everything in the trash. I never did it. But um, I was impressed when I started looking at some of the things that I looked at as complete junk, uh, totally unusable, and what they could take and do with those things and how they could transform those things into something of value, into something of use. You know, the word recycle actually means to adapt or convert something to a new and useful state. And you, know, you look at a water bottle, you look at, you know, an old piece of cardboard or newspaper, you, you don't, you know, for me, I would see that I wouldn't see any value, but yet they were able to do some great things with that. Now, the reason I'm talking about recycling is because in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that God is in the business of recycling people. God is a master at recycling people's lives into changing them to be something new and useful for Him. He takes screwed up sinful people and converts them to a new useful state. Here in Acts chapter 9, we have an example of God recycling a man named Saul, and we know that he's going to turn into Paul, the great apostle and missionary, the man who was a murderer and was a man who um, persecuted Christians, is now going to be a missionary and a pastor, and he's going to take this messed up sinful man, and he's going to change him. A man that many would have looked at as beyond hope, Beyond saved, beyond being used, God's going to do a great work in changing him. As believers, I think we sometimes come across people like Saul, and we consider them of no value. We consider them of no use. We just see how horribly sinful they are, how screwed up their life is, and we kind of just disregard them as we do a a piece of junk that we think, you know, this is beyond use, this is worthless, There's, there's nothing that can be done with it except being thrown away. Sometimes we look at that sinful person in the mirror and we say that about ourselves. We think, man, God could never use me. God could never see any usefulness in me. God can never change me. God can never do anything through my life because of my past sin or because of the struggles that I have now that I haven't been able to overcome in my life. We're going to see in our passage this morning that many believers in the early church, that's how they viewed Saul. Here's a man who could never be used. Here's a man who could never be changed. Here's a man that God could never do anything with. But they couldn't have been farther from the truth. Something we need to understand is that is not how God viewed Saul. God viewed Saul as someone who was recyclable, someone that he could change, someone that he could be uh, turned into a useful tool for him. See, God sees the person who exhibits the most misguided and sinful and disgraceful behavior as someone who is recyclable. God doesn't just see just what you are now. He sees what he can make you in the future. He sees how he can change you and use you. Well, two weeks ago, we started the 
the start of this recycle process when Saul encounters Jesus there on the road to Damascus. He gets saved. That's always the starting process. But it doesn't end there. Uh, the Lord then starts this work that really is never complete until the day that we die, uh, that he wants to continue to change us. He wants to continue to work in us. And, you know, an encouraging passage for us is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let this verse be an encouragement to you that, you know, God started something in you the day that you accepted him and he's not done. You know, sometimes I think, man, we, we have this concept of, you know, oh man, I'm never going to change. I'm never going to grow. God's done with me. No, he's going to complete the work that he started. It's on him. He's going to do that. He's going to change you. He's going to continue to work in you. This recycling process is not done for us. God is still working and helping us grow to become more like Jesus. So Saul's recycling process started at the beginning of chapter 9 here, and now we're going to see a continuation of this process as God helps him change. So we're picking up this morning, chapter 9, starting in verse 20, and it says this, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who call on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So notice Luke tells us right after Saul's conversion, right after he accepts Christ, right after he's filled with the Spirit, we're told that immediately he preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God of God. Notice that right away, Saul starts to share with people about Jesus. Right away, right after he accepts Jesus, this natural response of his is, I want to go and I want to tell people about him. You know, and that should be the natural response that we have as we come to know the Lord, as we come to accept the Lord. We don't have to have all the this great understanding of the Bible. We don't have to know everything, but what we do know is our testimony. We do know what God has done for us. We do know what Jesus has done for us, because if we didn't know what Jesus had done for us, we wouldn't be saved because that is what we're accepting. So we know the gospel truth. And once we accept Christ, we should be desiring, like Paul did, to go and share with people, to go and tell people our testimony. You know, that's one of the most powerful tools that we have to reach people and impact people with the gospel, just to let them know what Jesus has done for you, how he has changed you, what you used to be, and how he's recycled your life, and how he's working in you, and how he's able to use you for his glory. You know, whether you've been saved for a week or for 20 years, you have a testimony and God desires you to use that testimony to impact others. So immediately Saul, after he gets saved, he starts preaching that Jesus is the son of God there in the synagogues. Now, I want you to understand at that time uh, during, you know, the time here in, in Saul's life, in a synagogue, if you were a learned man, if you had studied under a rabbi who was respected, if you were to walk into a synagogue, then they would allow you to teach. They would allow you to share with those that are there. And so Saul... He has a, a wonderful pedigree when it comes to Judaism. Here's a man who studied under Gamaliel, which was one of the most respected rabbis of that time. Obviously, he was very zealous for Judaism, so zealous that he actually traveled to Damascus for the purpose of destroying Christianity, which he thought was a threat to Judaism. So he's kind of the poster boy, if you say, of Judaism. Remember, the high priests have sent him out. You know, they see Saul as the man who's kind of the face of Judaism going out to destroy Christianity. And so he shows up at the synagogue. 
And I want you to picture those people who are there because they're thinking, oh my goodness, you know, we have Saul here with us. How wonderful, how great. And he gets this opportunity and privilege to share because of, you know, his background in Judaism, because of these things, he's now able to speak to those who are there. The leadership there in the synagogue would have gladly given him that opportunity. But remember back in uh, chapter 9, or we're in chapter 9, but verse 2, it said this, Saul asked letters from the high priest to the synagogues of Damascus, so that they found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So notice this, those who are in the synagogue, especially the leaders, they already know why Saul is there. He's there to persecute Christians. He's there to take them back to Jerusalem and imprison them and kill them. And so they know Saul, they know he's very anti-Jesus, they know he's very anti-Christianity. And so as he comes into the synagogue, imagine what they're thinking. They're thinking, hey, you know, most likely the message from this very zealous man is going to be a message that's anti-Jesus, a message that's anti-Christianity, a message of, hey, you see any of them, let me know, I'll take care of it. Now try to imagine what it would have been like, is that's what you're anticipating, that's what you're expecting the message of Saul to be, this very anti-Jesus message, and all of a sudden he stands up in front of you, and he starts proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. I know the shocking would be probably an understatement, especially considering who this man was. You know, I grew up in a church that was very focused on the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, regularly we would have people that, you know, my dad would invite to come and share on that topic, people that were considered famous in those groups, and they would write books, and they'd, they'd come speak on that. And so, you know, my dad had invited this man who had written many books, and, you know, he was kind of big on this topic of the gifts of the Spirit. He had him come and speak. But something my dad didn't know is that this man's views had changed. They actually had drastically changed. He didn't believe that the gifts of the Spirit were for anyone today any longer. But my dad didn't know that. He invited this guy, you know, because he kind of did the circuits. And this guy's goal now was to go through churches and kind of tell them that they were wrong in their beliefs. And so he gladly accepts this opportunity to come and speak. And so... My dad stands up and he gives this, oh, you know, so-and-so here, he's going to share with us some wonderful truths about the Holy Spirit, thinking, oh, he's going to tell us about the gifts and how great they are and how we can use them, not really knowing what he's going to say. And so we're all ready for this. And this guy gets up and says, you know the books that I've read and you know the, you know, the, the different places that I've spoken, but God has given me a message that is so vital for you to understand. And everyone's waiting for it. My dad's all excited. And then he says, the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today. Now, you can imagine the shock of everyone in the room of like, we're expecting one thing and we get something very different. And I remember looking at my brother with this smile on my face thinking, oh my goodness, can you believe it? Uh, and, you know, in our church there, it was never quiet during the preaching of the sermon. People were always shouting, praise the Lord and preach it and amen. And, you know, it was constant. But when he said that, and he's continued for a little bit longer, it was just completely silent, this total awkwardness that was there. I look at my dad. I'm smiling. He's not. Uh, he eventually got up and, you know, asked the guy to stop. But, you know, we were shocked because we were expecting one thing, and we got something very different. And that's what's taking place here with Saul. He's coming in, and they're all expecting a very anti-Jesus, anti-Christianity message. And he comes and he starts sharing that Jesus is the Son of God. And I just imagine just the shock when we're told how they responded. It says, is this not who he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? I mean, 
Isn't this the same guy down in Jerusalem who was killing people for believing in Jesus? And isn't that the reason he came here to begin with? I mean, they're kind of dumbfounded by the reality of he is now preaching about Jesus, the one that he sought to destroy. They were shocked. I don't think any of them expected Saul from going from persecutor of Jesus to preacher of Jesus. You know, years after this, Saul writes of this recycling work that God does in his life, a very encouraging verse for all of us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, when you and I accept Christ, this wonderful change takes place. We become this new creation, this recycling process that God does in us to change us to something new. He takes sinful people like you and me, sinful people who aren't really doing anything for him or aren't living for him, who are completely living for our own sinful pleasures and desires, and he changes us. He does a work in us. He continues that work. Well, as Saul is preaching in Damascus, we're told in verse 22, he increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. So here we see this changing work, this recycling work in Saul starting to happen. Notice that he's increasing in strength and in wisdom. And look what he's doing. He's proving to people that Jesus is the Christ. Remember that Greek term just means the Messiah, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the one that they were waiting for, the one that they rejected. He's saying this Jesus is that one. Now, Saul was a scholar in the Old Testament. He was very uh, aware of you know what the Old Testament taught, but he was blinded to the truth of who Jesus was. And now he sees it. And now he's trying to prove and convince to these Jews there in the synagogue of this reality of who Jesus is. So they're shocked at the change in Saul, probably shocked at his message. Let's see how they respond to this man who has had this drastic change. Verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Well, the Jews' response, the religious leaders probably especially, is the same as it's been whenever they're threatened, whenever they believe their belief system's threatened or the authority they have is threatened. They decide, we're going to kill this guy. And you can understand why. I mean, here's the poster boy of Judaism. Here's the man that they have sent out to destroy Christianity. And instead of destroying those who believe in Jesus, he's become a follower of Jesus. Instead of trying to stop people from preaching about Jesus, he's preaching about Jesus. And so this is horrible for them. This is worse than the apostles because he's a man that they sent out. He's a man that had their authority. He's a man that they would respect there in the synagogues because they look at his pedigree. They look at his background. They look at what he shares and they realize here's a man that brings a huge threat to us there's only one solution we must kill him well that's what they try to do but their plot becomes known to Saul they find out that they're trying to kill him they're waiting at the gate they're waiting for him to leave Damascus and when he walks out that gate boom they're going to get him and they're going to kill him and so they come up with a plan In order to prevent this from happening, the believers there in Damascus, they get at nighttime Saul, they stick him in a basket, and they lower him down over the wall there in the city gates, and he is able to escape and sneak away without getting killed from these Jews. Verse 26 says this, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. 
Now, something we need to understand about the book of Acts is as Luke is writing and as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you can probably already note this, that any person that we see, whether it's Saul who turns into Paul, whether it's Peter, whether it's John, whether it's Philip, whoever it is, we are not seeing their whole life. We're not seeing all that transpired as they follow the Lord. Luke is just giving us different highlights. And because of that, we have events that transpire, and sometimes we have quite a considerable gap between those events. But when you read, you sometimes think, They just happen right after one another. And this is one of those times where it can be even more confusing because it's not between two chapters. It's between verses 25 and verse 26. In verse 25, we see Saul lowered out of a basket to escape those trying to kill him in Damascus. Verse 26, we see him entering Jerusalem. The natural assumption is he left Damascus, traveled to Jerusalem, and there he is. It just happened right away. But we know that from... um, Galatians, that that is not the case. Uh, Luke 26 and uh, verse 26, Luke shares with us this important part of Saul's life, but he chooses not to share what transpires after he's lowered down from a basket and what happens before he finally comes down to Jerusalem. But let me let you know uh, what takes place because uh, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter one, starting in verse 15, he says this, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's wound and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Saul reveals that after his conversion experience, after he's lowered in that basket, after he escapes you know, the plot to kill him, he doesn't go directly to um, Jerusalem. Instead, he goes to Arabia, then he comes back to Damascus, and he spends three years in Damascus, and then he goes to Jerusalem. So as you can see here from the map, Damascus is at the far north of Israel. That's where he is. That's where he escapes. And instead of coming all the way down to Jerusalem, notice he goes out to the Arabian desert uh, and he spends some time out in the desert. And then after he spends some time out in the desert, he goes back to Damascus, the place that they were trying to kill him. And he spends three years there. And then after three years, he comes down and he travels to Jerusalem. uh, And that's where we come here and pick up in verse 26. So verses 25 and 26 between those, there's been at least three years that has transpired in the life of of Saul. And I want to bring this up especially because sometimes we look at him and we see, whoa, he gets saved, he starts preaching, and he goes to Jerusalem, and he does all these missionary journeys, and it's like boom, boom, boom. And we don't realize, actually, there were many years that transpired in the life of Saul that God used to prepare him, that God used to do work in him. He didn't just get saved and become this amazing missionary. We're going to note that actually, even after this instance going to Jerusalem, he's going to have 12 more years before he goes on his first missionary journey. So there were a lot of work that God did in Saul prior to the great work that God used Saul to do. So sometimes we read Acts and we think, man, this happened so quick. Oh, I'm such a loser. You know, I've been saved for so long and God hasn't done this. Well, no, it takes time for God to work and it took time for God to work in Saul as well. So three years have transpired. Now we come to verse 26 again, and reminder of what it says. He comes to Jerusalem. He tries to join the disciples, but they're all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So Saul, he finally comes down to Jerusalem where the church is. You know, it's spread now, but this is the hub. This is where it started. He's finally able to come. He's finally able to see some of the apostles. But notice that we're told 
as he tried to join the disciples, the early church, that they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, this is understandable because the last time Saul was in Jerusalem, he was killing Christians. The last time Saul was in Jerusalem, he was imprisoning Christians. He was going into people's homes, dragging them out, throwing them into prison. They haven't forgot that. Yeah, it's been three years, but he's been gone. And they know that he left to go do the same thing in Damascus. And so, you know, these people haven't believed that there's been any real change in Saul. They probably are starting to think, you know what, he's just pretending. He's not really a disciple. He's not really a follower of Jesus. He just wants to find out who is following Jesus so he can imprison us, so he can kill us. And so they just think he's kind of just, you know, this secretive mole that's trying to, you know, infiltrate the church. And they don't believe that he is what he claims to be. You see, they didn't view Saul as God viewed him. They viewed Saul as what he was, a man trying to destroy Christianity, not a man who could be changed, not a man that could be saved, not a man that God could use and recycle his life. God can change even the worst sinners and use them for his glory. Now, fortunately, not all the believers in Jerusalem viewed Saul this way. There was one who saw what God was doing. We've seen him before, verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. When all the believers are fearing Saul and they're in Jerusalem, there's one believer who believes that Saul actually has been changed, that Saul actually has been saved, that the truth of what Saul is bringing has transpired, and that man's name is Barnabas. He responds differently. He responds with love. If you remember back in Acts chapter 4, we're told a couple things about Barnabas. Verse 36, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Remember this man? Remember, he sold all that he had and he gave it to the church and said, you know what, use it to help the poor. Use it in any way you can. And they said, you know what, we're going to change your name from Joseph to Barnabas. And the reason we're giving you the name Barnabas is because it means son of encouragement. And you're such an encouragement that you were so generous, that you were so giving. But you know what, we see more encouragement from Barnabas. He wasn't just a man who was generous with his finances and, and generous in that. Here's a man who is also generous and loving and encouraging because he's the only one who reaches out to Saul. He's the only one in the church. Everyone else feared him. Everyone said, stay away. But he went to him and he takes him and he brings him before the apostles. Barnabas was an encourager because he was willing to receive and show love to a man that most thought he could never change. He believed that God could change anyone, no matter how sinful they were. You know, the church is in real need of encouragers like Barnabas, a people who will go out of their way to reach out to those who are just lost and sinful and hurting and say, you know, I'm going to show you love. I'm going to, you know, work on helping you and seeing God do a work in you. You know, I'm sure many of you have had those types of people in your life. I had a Barnabas in my life. His name was Cody at a time when I was very spiritually vulnerable in high school and, you know, I had been living for myself and living for the world. And, you know, here was a man who came and really shared with me, poured into me, shared Christ with me, discipled me. You know, when I left high school, I joined, went to the school of evangelism. I didn't have a car or a ride. He drove me every day. I mean, this was a guy who poured a lot into me and was a huge impact in my life. And I'm very grateful that God had brought him to my life. And he was an encouragement in many ways. 
You know, and it's great to have those Barnabases. It's great to have those Cody's or in your life, whoever that might be. But it's also great to be that yourself. You see, people are instrumental in the recycling of products. You know, you can have all the recycling plants you want, but the bottom line is if the people don't take the products and put it, give them to the plants, then nothing's going to happen. And in the same way, we are instrumental in the recycling of people. God wants to use you to help recycle other people. And sometimes we're not willing to help. Sometimes we view people like these believers did of Saul, of they're just too sinful, they're no longer useful. God, they had their opportunities, they had their chances, they made their choices, and we kind of just write them off, and we want nothing to do with them, and we no longer seek to be used by God to reach them. And obviously that is not the way that God wants us to respond to anyone. But you know what? Sometimes we're not that far gone, but we're like Ananias was at the beginning of this chapter reluctant. We don't maybe draw the conclusion of you could never work in this person, but we're definitely reluctant when we look at the sinful lifestyle of some individuals and we see what they're doing. And and remember Ananias, you know, God says, I want you to go reach out to Saul. And he says, God, do you realize the horrible things this guy's done? Do you realize how much he's persecuted believers in you? But even though he was reluctant, he was still obedient and he was a part of the recycling work that God did in Saul's life. Now, being a reluctant recycler of people is better than not being a recycler of people at all. But God wants us to bring bring us to a place like Barnabas, where not only we we are willing, but we're happy and desiring to go and be used by God to reach people who are bound by sin, people who need to be reached with the gospel and need to be invested in once they accept the gospel. God desires us to want to be a part of what he's doing in people's lives. You know, when God looks at someone, he doesn't just see how screwed up and sinful they are. And that's kind of often what we see. But he sees how he can change them. He sees that how he can use them. He sees not only the problems that they have, but he also sees their potential. You know, when you look at the life of Jesus here on this earth, you see this over and over again, especially with the disciples that he chose. I mean, you look at the disciples and you think, what were you thinking, Jesus? I mean, come on, you're going to, you know, be in the world for three years and then you're going to leave and then you're going to say, here guys, you guys take over. I mean, look at the guys that you've chosen. You would think, man, you could have done a better job. But you know what? Jesus didn't just see where they were at with all their problems. He saw their future potential. He didn't just, didn't just look and say, you know what? Here's where you're at. I'm looking at where I can take you. Yeah, maybe you're kind of useless right now, but I know that I can make you useful. And God sees those things in you. He sees those things in me, and he wants to help us see people in that way as well. You know, for many of us, we have a problem, and our problem is we always kind of can focus on the negative and the issues that people have and their sin, and that's so easy for us to see, but it's not easy for us to see the potential that's there, how God can use them, what God could do in them, and we're so blinded so much by, well, they're just so screwed up, they're just done, you know, why even waste time with them instead of seeing, no, God can change them, God can use them, God can do a great work in them. One of Jenny's brothers, I don't think he's been here, so you haven't met him yet. His name is Curtis, and he's an amazing woodworker. Here's a chair, rocking chair that he made. Uh, and a, a few years ago, he showed me a picture, which I thought, thought was a pile of junk. Uh, and it was a bunch of scrap wood that used to be a table. And he's like, oh, this is so amazing. And, and look at what I saw. And, and he was just telling me about when he looked at that picture, he could see this beautiful table that he was going to make out of it. 
when I looked at that picture, I saw firewood. You know, I didn't see anything that was useful. I saw, well, there's a bunch of junk that, you know, we could, you know, roast some marshmallows over. But, you know, he saw this broken up pieces of wood. And then he showed me the picture of the table he made out of it. And it was just like this. It was immaculate. It was beautiful. But, you know, he had this, this ability this craftsman's eye that he was able to look at something differently than most of us. I saw this pile of broken wood as useless. He saw this pile of broken wood as something that he could do something amazing with. And I think the same way God looks at our lives, and sometimes we look at our own lives as just a a pile of brokenness that could never be used, and God says, no, 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 you can't imagine what I could do with you. Or we look at other people as this pile of brokenness that could never be used, and, and we need to see as God sees, because he says, no, I'm the master craftsman. I can change them and mold them and make them into something amazing. When you struggle with seeing what God sees, I think an encouragement is just look in the mirror. Remember what God did for you. You know, I think especially when we've been saved for a while, we forget how messed up we really were. We forget how screwed up we really were. And we look at people's lives and think, oh, they could never be saved. And it's like, well, he saved me. Look at how I was before God saved me. Look what I was into. Look at how sinful I was. And look at how he's changed me. That alone should be enough to be confident that God can change others as well. And if you think, well, I've been a pretty good person, well, look at a guy like Saul and look what God was able to do in him. So Barnabas reached out to Saul when none of the other believers would, and he took Saul to the apostles, and then we're told what happened. He declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road to Damascus and that he had uh, Jesus had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Saul gets this opportunity to tell of his conversion experience. Hey, I met Jesus personally. He came in to me there on the road, and man, I got saved, and then I went out and I started preaching in Damascus about him. Let's see what happens next, verse 28. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenist. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. You remember when Ananias came to Saul, one of the things that God told Ananias is, you know what, Saul's going to suffer many things ultimately in following me. And notice, Saul goes and preaches. What do they try to do? Kill him. Comes here to Jerusalem, he preaches. What are they going to try to do? Kill him. We're going to see a pattern all through the book of Acts. Saul's going to go and he's going to proclaim Jesus and they beat him and they stone him and they try to kill him. He truly is going to be someone who's going to suffer greatly for Jesus. But this time he's disputing with the Hellenist Jews. Remember, these are Jews that have come from uh, different Greek uh, countries and backgrounds. And he's disputing with them concerning Jesus. And just like in Damascus, they want to kill him. But also, just like in Damascus, the believers there in Jerusalem, they find out about the plot to kill Saul, and they help thwart that plot. They put him on a boat over to um, Caesarea, and then they send him out to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is his hometown. That's where he's from. And there's going to be 12 years now that transpire, that he's kind of off the radar. We don't really know what God's doing. Obviously, he's probably serving up there in Tarsus. And then he's going to go, and he's going to be sent out by the church in Antioch. We're going to find Barnabas once again. is going to go and meet up with Saul, and those two are going to head out on their first missionary journey together. But there's this transition, this time period that transpires uh, in Saul's life. Well, let's see how this affects the early church, the conversion of a man who was so anti-Jesus and now for Jesus, verse 31. 
Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Notice this. At the beginning of chapter 9, we're told Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But God was able to take this man who was trying to destroy Christians and turn him around, recycle him, change him, change him to a man that was usable, a man that was preaching Jesus. God was able to do what most people didn't think was possible, change a man who was murdering believers. And the result of God's great work in Saul's life with the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, had peace and were edified. It brought peace because their great persecutor is no longer the great persecutor. He's now the great preacher. He was changed. The one who was heading up all this persecution, God has changed. And there's a peace and there's a recognition. God's on our side. God can protect us. God can change even those who are coming against us. And so there's this peace that comes over them, but also they're edified through it. Wow, look what God can do. I would have never thought Saul would have changed, but God was able to do that. And so there was peace. There was edification within the body of Christ because of the testimony of what God was able to do in this man's life. And that should be the response. You know, when you share not only with unbelievers, but with believers, the testimony of what God has done and is doing in your life, it brings edification. It builds people up to to see, wow, God is good. Look what he's taking you out of. Look what he's doing. Look how he's using you. That's a way that you can encourage others in a way that you can reach out to those who don't know the Lord yet. Well, Luke now is going to finish chapter 9, changing his focus from Saul to Peter. And I want you to notice something. Saul was spiritually messed up and he needed to be spiritually recycled. But there are people who also are physically messed up. They have physical ailments, physical issues, physical problems, and they need to be physically recycled. And we're going to see this shift from Saul who needed to be spiritually recycled to God using Peter to help recycle physically messed up people. And the first person that Peter encounters is in verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Then he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So Peter, you know, we kind of have taken a break from him, but he's still been doing ministry. As remember, it just Luke's just sharing highlights. It's not like Peter has stopped doing anything, but he's traveling around, you know, uh, Israel, and he's now come to Lydda. As you can see, it's in the region of Judea, a little bit northwest of Jerusalem. He comes into this town, and he comes across a man who definitely was physically messed up, a man who had been bedridden eight years because he was paralyzed. Eight years, probably felt useless, probably felt helpless, maybe worthless, definitely someone who was needing a touch from God. He needed to be physically recycled. Well, Peter says to Manaus, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. You know, I want you to note two things as we look at this one and the next one, what Peter does, because both in this instance and the next instance, we see Peter just following the example of Jesus. Jesus comes across guys who are paralyzed and bedridden. Arise, take up your bed and walk. Peter comes across the same type of situation. What do I do? Well, I guess I'll just follow Jesus' example. Arise, take your bed, get up, go. And notice the Lord heals this man. 
recycles him physically, physically heals Aeneas. And the result is that all who saw what happened turned to the Lord. And I've mentioned this many times, you know, the supernatural, the gifts of the Spirit, you know, aren't just to, to puff us up and make us look good. One of the most important things is it brings glory to God and that people accept Jesus through it. This man gets healed, and because of it, many turn to Jesus. They see the miraculous power of God, and it draws them to a personal relationship with Jesus. And that should be the desire. Why we want to see these things transpire? Because we want to see ultimately God get the glory and people come to know Jesus Christ. And that's what transpires here. Well, Peter continues his traveling. He's continuing to be used by God and, and impact people for God. And, and now he's going to Joppa, which is a little more northwest towards the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And uh, he has another encounter with another physically messed up person. Notice what happens in verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, and since Lida was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room and they... All the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then they gave her, then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed on the Lord so that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. In Joppa, there's this wonderful believer, this lady named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. And we're told that she was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. And some of the charitable deeds was she made tunics and, and garments for, for widows, for those who were in need. You know, in the church I grew up in, there was a ministry with uh, these older ladies established where they would knit and they'd make clothes for homeless people and needy people. Uh, and they called the ministry the Dorcas Ministry. Now, I didn't know this story at that point in time. Uh, my dad just kind of taught random topics and this was never one of them. Uh, and so we, myself, my siblings, all the younger people in the church, you know, a dork growing up was not a term that you would want to call yourself. And so we thought this was so humorous. Like, what are these ladies thinking calling this ministry? ministry Dorcas. I mean, why do they want to be known that way? Uh, and so we, we had lots of laughs over that. And, you know, whenever some announcement was the Dorcas ministry has made this, we would all giggle. But, you know, later on, I finally studied this and, you know, realized that, you know, this this woman, Tabitha, translated Dorcas, that, that word actually means beautiful gazelle. And uh, it was a great name for the ministry because this woman represented uh, just something wonderful where she uh, used her gifts to just minister to people, especially to those who were in need and made clothing for them. And uh, so Luke tells us that Tabitha, she becomes very sick and she dies. And now notice that people have this confidence now in the power of God, because there's a point where, you know, we kind of just like, all right, when they're sick, we call on the Lord. When they're dead, they're, they're dead. They're gone. They say, hey, Peter's not far away. Go get him. They, they, they wash her body. They stick her in an upper room. And they say, get Peter to come and do what he does. And so, but notice what happens. Peter gets there. There's a bunch of people weeping. Naturally, she's dead. Peter says, all right, I want all you to, to leave. He goes in, he kneels down, he prays, 
And he turns to this body and he says, Tabitha, arise. Now remember, Peter, James, and John, we, we, we say they were part of the inner circle because Jesus allowed them to be a part of things and see things that the other disciples didn't. And there was an instance in, in the Gospels where Peter, James, and John got to see something that no one else did. And this is one of the things they saw, Mark chapter 5, verse 40. When Jesus had put them all outside, so there was a bunch of people weeping over this little girl who died. Peter, James, John, Jesus, and the parents are the only ones who get to come in. He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. So Jesus encounters this little girl who was dead. Everyone's weeping. Everyone's thinking, you know, it's final. It's done. Jesus goes in, sends all the weepers out, just brings the parents, Peter, James, and John, comes and says, little girl, arise. She does. Notice now they grab Peter. They bring him into a certain situation. I mean, imagine someone bringing you into a home and says, my loved one died. What are you going to do? Uh, they're dead. Uh, you know, hopefully they're with the Lord. You know, Peter comes in and what is, how does he respond? Well, he just responds with the example that he saw. He does exactly what Jesus did. All right, all of you weepers, get out of here. And he goes in and he prays and he says the exact same thing that Jesus says. Yeah, basically, arise. Trust that what Jesus had the power to do, God gave him the power to do. And we see the same result. The little girl arose and we see Tabitha also is raised from the dead. And Naturally, the response there of everybody who sees that are many believe on the Lord. They see this power of God to take someone who's dead and bring them back to life. Once again, God physically recycles. He physically heals. And this time he does it for this believer named Tabitha. Now, I want you to notice that God uses Peter to be a part of the healing process of Aeneas and Tabitha. And God could have done it himself. He didn't need to use Peter. You know, he could have just supernaturally healed both these people without using anybody. But he chose to do that. And we see that as a pattern. Notice with Saul as well. You know, he first uses uh, Ananias to come and reach Saul. He uses Barnabas to come and reach Saul. God likes to involve us in the process of recycling people spiritually and physically. He wants us to be used in that. God could do it himself, but he chooses to bring us to be a part of that. He wants us to grow through that. He's the master recycler of shaping and reshaping people's lives, but he wants to not only do it in your life, but he wants to use you as he does it in the lives of others. And so there's two main things I want you to take from this passage this morning. First of all, it's important for us to see ourselves as recyclable, to recognize that God can do a changing work in us and a changing work in others. God can change and do a great work in anyone, no matter how messed up they are. And second, it's important for us to see ourselves as recyclers. Yes, God can do a work in us. He can do a work in others, but he wants to use you. He wants to use you to impact and be a part of the process of spiritually and physically recycling other people. And please remember, there is no one of too little worth, no one too far gone, no one too sinful that God doesn't want to reach, that God doesn't want to recycle, that God doesn't want to change for his glory. God is in the business of recycling people's lives, and he wants us to be a part of that process as well. And we need to remember the only reason that is possible 
is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. The only reason that God can change sinful people is because Jesus paid the price for our sin. The only reason God can forgive sinful people is because Jesus paid the price for our sin. The only reason God can have a relationship with sinful people is because Jesus paid the price for our sin. 